stops here. Plug the radio in. Hello, everyone. It's time for Evidence for Faith, the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I am Kirk Hastings. We have a website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, that you can listen to past podcasts of archived shows. We are also on iTunes. I'm really looking forward to this program and our special guest this week. Yes. But before we get to our special guest, I've got a great quote here. This came across from Apologetics 315, a terrific website. This quote is from historian Thomas Arnold about the resurrection. And he says, Thousands and tens of thousands have gone through the evidence which attests the resurrection of Christ, piece by piece, as carefully as ever a judge summed up on the most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times, examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fitter evidence and every kind. That is historian Thomas Arnold. So that's a great quote to start off the show. We also have an email from a listener that I answered recently, so I thought we'd go over that. And Kirk, I don't know if you remember, we've gotten a few emails from Felipe. Yes, I remember him. The last discussion we had with him, he was asking about mutations, and I talked about how when a gene mutates, it's almost always deleterious and the gene becomes broken. And so he questioned us on that. He says, why would you equate a mutated gene with a broken gene? Mutation also means that the gene will produce a different protein. And then he gives a couple of websites where it talks about mutations. And he says, in that case, you have two copies of the gene. And when the gene is passed on to the next generation, you have two populations, each one with a different copy of the gene. Okay, now this is really interesting because I'm, I'm certain that a lot of unbelievers, a lot of atheists are making a similar mistake when they think about what it means to have a mutation. So I answered him briefly that the reason it's a loss is that the functioning gene produces a specific protein that does a specific job. So the problem then isn't that the protein, this new mutated protein, won't do the old job, but maybe does some other job. The problem is that this new protein will not do any job at all. So I told him about how, you know, just as there are 20 specific amino acids that are used in life, those are not all of the amino acids that are possible to use, yet life only uses 20 of them. Also, all those amino acids have to be left-handed. And Kirk, you talk about that in your book. Right. So 
the, the issue is that the vast majority of proteins, possible proteins, have no function whatsoever. So when a gene becomes mutated, usually it ceases to function. Which now, means you're losing the original function of that gene. That's right. And that's why it's bad. That's why the majority of mutations are bad. Now, fortunately, the genetic code is redundant. So there are many backup systems built in to the genetic code. There's one pathway that we talked about in shows past where it's backed up eight different times. So if you wanted to get rid of this function in a living cell, you have to have eight specific mutations to stop this this function. Wow. But but many genes are simply backed up, you know, twice. So they have a backup system. Now these backup systems are completely unexplained by natural selection because natural selection cannot identify the gene that's not being used. It can only identify the current gene that's being used. And all genes that are not being used will gradually decay away. So I gave the example of this sentence, the fat cat ate the wee rat. <laughs> now, if you give a bunch of different examples of possible mutations, any of those possible mutations, the kinds of things that happen in a mutation, that sentence will no longer make any sense. Right. So it's not that it becomes a different sentence and can do a different function. Right. It's that it makes no sense whatsoever. In other words, it doesn't function as a sentence anymore. <laughs> Correct. And if it doesn't function as a sentence, that means it's not contributing to the life of the organism and it becomes deleterious. Right. It's no good. Right. So for every functioning protein, there's maybe a quadrillion non-functioning variations of it. And that's why the proofreading and the repair machinery in the DNA is so important. Otherwise, the germ cell line where, that you pass down to your children would die out just like you and I and all our listeners will die out because of mutations. We eventually, if we don't you know, get run over by a car, we'll eventually die of the mutations in our own bodies. And the same with the gene line. Hmm. So, well, the first so, thing uh, I think of when I think of mutations is those monster movies from the 1950s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, if you mutate the monster and keep mutating it, eventually you get nothing but a blob of flesh. So you get the blob. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then you get nothing. <laughs> we have a terrific guest. This is a professor that I had the pleasure of hearing recently. His name is Dr. Tim McGrew. Dr. Tim McGrew, welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Now, I had the pleasure of being down in New Orleans at an apologetics conference back in 2009 and got to hear him speak on undesigned coincidences, which is just a terrific topic. It's something that we haven't really talked a whole lot on this show about, and the interesting thing is that uh, Dr. McGrew, Kirk and I had the opportunity to be on a, an atheist podcast. We were invited on the show to explain the evidences for Christianity, and we wound up not being able to use the material because instead of presenting the evidence for Christianity, we wound up having to answer all their questions and all their accusations of problems with the gospel narratives. Don't tell me you didn't anticipate that that was what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had them on our show and they were really gentlemanly like, actually, you know, that show, we never got to the topic that at hand either. Sure. So yeah, it wasn't a surprise. But, but um, the second time they really went for the jugular and were throwing all kinds of uh, obscure 
questions at us about specific verses in the Old Testament, and it's and I was like, what? <laughs> so. Anyways, so unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk about these undesigned coincidences that I had learned about at the conference. Before we get into that, let me just give a little bio about Dr. McGrew for our audience. He's a professor of philosophy at Western Michigan University. He's taught in the graduate program there for the past 16 years and has been extensively published. He specializes in the history and philosophy of science, theory of knowledge, and probability theory with strong research and teaching interests in formal logic and the history of modern philosophy. One of his current research projects is the development of an extensive library of works in the history of Christian apologetics. And Dr. McGrew, that's where you came across this argument called undesigned coincidences. That's exactly right. So this is really fascinating because apparently it was well known, what, a hundred years ago? Yeah, throughout the 19th century it was extremely widely discussed and well known, and for reasons that are not really altogether clear, it dropped off the radar sometime in the early 20th century with the exception of an occasional reference by someone like F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, but for the most part, the way even that Christian apologetics has developed through the 20th century, uh, this argument for uncertain reasons has just fallen by the wayside, and I think it's time for us to, shall we say, resurrect it. There you go. Perfect topic for today, then. <laughs> now, to me, in my mind, this seems like the opposite of a contradiction. Can you just explain to us what is an undesigned coincidence? Sure. Everyone knows that, say, in the Synoptic Gospels, there are passages that are nearly word-for-word -word identical, especially passages where someone is being quoted. And it's very easy to account for that by saying, well, you know, maybe Mark's Gospel was written first, and then along came Matthew and Luke, and as they were writing with their Gospels, they said, hey, no need to reinvent the wheel, we've got it right here, and they more or less copied down those words. But there are also cases where two historical records incidentally touch on the same point in a manner that would be very unlikely if one of them were copied from the other or if both were copied from a common source. Maybe one account uh, of an event leaves out a bit of information, and because of that there's some natural question that's left unanswered. And a different document indirectly supplies the missing detail and in so doing answers that question. When this happens, the best explanation is that both records are grounded in the actual historical event. That's why the two bits fit together so well. Mm -hmm. Great. I guess the best thing then is to give us an example of it and try and explain what it is that you're talking about. Sure. L let me just frame the, uh, the discussion a little bit by saying this is an argument that gathers force as you consider multiple examples. Any single example that you take, you could say, well, that's interesting, but it might be a coincidence. And you can look at another example and say, well, that could just be a coincidence. Maybe that's not the way to bet, but it might be. But when you get a whole bunch of them together, it's sort of like looking over the shoulder of someone who's assembling a jigsaw puzzle. And you could say about any two pieces, well, I'm not sure that those fit together. But once the picture is beginning to emerge and you've got a couple dozen pieces in place, it's just silly at that point to say, no, 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 no. None of those pieces fit together. You're just totally wrong. And so this is an argument where uh, piece by piece, it's easy enough to shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's curious, but it doesn't convince me. But when you put the pieces together, the cumulative case, if it's very extensive, and it is in this case, 
is what really carries cogency. So, so in start, that situation, you, you're stretching coincidence a little too far. Right. You can do that with one thing. You can do that with another thing. You can do it with things one at a time. But at a certain point, you just say, well, but everything points this direction. Now what am I going to do? And that is the point at which we have to say to write it all off as coincidence is really one of the ways of being unreasonable. There may be emotional reasons for someone to do that, but there are not good rational reasons to do it. So let me give you an example of one where there's an explanation of something that's otherwise inexplicable. In Matthew chapter 26, we have the story of Jesus' arrest by night and his mistreatment by the soldiers. And if you read Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68, it talks about a bit of that mistreatment. It says, Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, nowhere in the passage is there any information that would help us to make sense of this. Why does this taunt even make sense? If I slap you in the face, which of course I would not do, you'd be standing right there and you'd see who it was and you wouldn't have to be a prophet in order to tell who slapped you, right? Right. So what's going on here? It's just, it's a dangling end. It's left over. Go to Luke chapter 22. We have the parallel narrative and the beauty of it is that it contains a bit different details. Here it says, they also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So there's that little detail that's been added in Luke that makes sense of what Matthew says. Could it be a coincidence? Could it just be that Matthew got lazy and forgot that he was writing that down? Well, yeah, it could be, although it's a little funny that the one detail he leaves out is the thing that leaves us with an unanswered question that we have to get answered by reading the other one. But that's an example, a very simple example, mm. of an undesigned coincidence. By itself, it's, it's of very little weight. But there are others, some of them I think of much greater weight, and they exhibit that kind of a pattern. You have a question about some passage and it's not answered, and then you look elsewhere and you find, oh, wait, the, the dots get connected. Things get tied back together. So is the idea that when Matthew writes about this, because he was familiar with the circumstances, he's writing, and he himself knows that Jesus was blindfolded, but when he writes, he simply forgets about it because, you know, maybe he's, uh, writing so he's so early familiar that, with it. Yeah, maybe he's writing so early that the all of his intended audience can be assumed to be familiar with the practice. Mm. Uh, maybe he it doesn't even occur to him that people 2,000 years later will be reading what he wrote and saying, well, now, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. But it's okay, because Luke, meticulously filling in all the details, and Luke is a wonderful historian, comes along and adds that little bit that helps us to make sense of that passage in Matthew. Again, this is one of the simplest examples, and I think it would be fair to say one of the least compelling standing by itself, but it illustrates the nature of the kind of connection here that we're talking about. Right. Now, it seems to me that a, an obvious at this point, not hearing anything else, but at this point, we might suppose, well, okay, then what's happening is that Luke has the Gospel of Matthew in front of him, and he's reading it, and he's copying from it to write his own Gospel, and so he, like you say, fills in those details. But in reality, the amazing thing about these undesigned coincidences is that they go both ways. They go multiple ways between the four Gospels. They do. Let me give you another example of one. Um, this one is between Mark and John, so we'll leave Matthew and Luke completely out of it. Okay? Um, Mark 6.31 gives us the setup for the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 
And so Jesus is speaking. He says to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Mark drops that into the narrative, and he doesn't explain why. He just moved, he, then he moves on. Why, he, he doesn't explain many coming, why many people were coming and right, going. Right, you know, what, what's, what's the big rush? What's the big press here? Is, is there, you know, is it the, the opening of a new Walmart in the area? What's going, why are people <laughs> rushing to the doors? Uh, what, what's, why all the crowds? There's no explanation of that anywhere in Mark. But if you go over to John chapter 6, verse 4, you find the setup for the same miracle. So we have uh, the, the frame for the same event. John does not mention that there were many coming and going, but he does say, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover was a, a eight-day-long feast, if you count the days on both ends, which in Josephus we see that they did, for which people made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they came from all around the rim of the Mediterranean. Faithful Jews came up from Alexandria, they came over from Greece and even Rome, they made the trip, and so there were just enormous throngs, hundreds of thousands of people clogging the roadways, thronging on their way down. Now we can see perfectly well why there were many coming and going and they had no leisure to eat. But Mark never mentions it's the Passover and John never mentions the crowds. But John's <laughs> incidental comment of the season at which this miracle took place tells us why there were many coming and going. Do you see the indirectness of that connection? Yeah, it's showing that they were essentially, it seems to me, evidence that they were eyewitnesses, that they were there, and that's why it all made sense to them. If they were writing a hundred years later, they would realize that what they're writing doesn't make any sense. It does indicate that there is a definite eyewitness basis for this. Mark, of course, is probably not an eyewitness of the event proper, but a an old and very well-authenticated tradition says that he was taking notes from Peter's preaching, and Peter was certainly there. Mm -hmm. So that's just another example, this time between the other two Gospels. And these do go all directions. These do uh, crisscross when when we uh, move on. Hey, can I just pick another one? And... Yeah, well, let me uh, yeah, reintroduce you for those who are joining us. Sure. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And with us, we have Dr. Tim McGrew, professor from Western Michigan University, talking about the reliability of the scriptures and specifically this interesting finding in the scriptures called undesigned coincidences that show that the scripture were written by eyewitnesses. So, Dr. McGrew, you said you have another one of these oh, to tell us about? Oh, I have many more of these. Like I said, right. the, the strength of the argument is in the cumulative force of numerous examples. Um, but here's just a very simple one. When Jesus comes to Capernaum, there's a story uh, about what happens to him uh, told in Matthew chapter 8. And after that story is over, he's been talking with somebody, uh, then, then it says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So it's a report of a miracle. The oddity in this bit, in Matthew 8:16 is that it says that they brought these people to him in the evening. Now, I don't know about you, but when I want medical attention, I want to get the very first appointment that I can. And I'm not really happy if they tell me, no, I'm sorry, but we've got an 8 o'clock p.m. appointment. And I, no, I want to get in now. And so it's a little puzzling that the people should have waited till evening. And there is nothing in the context in Matthew that would clarify that. If you go to Mark chapter 1, verse 21, 
you find the same uh, initial setup. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And now suddenly, the reason that they waited till evening is plain. These were devout Jews, the majority of them under the influence of the Pharisees, and they had a whole bunch of traditions festooned around the Sabbath, specifically that you could not bear a burden on the Sabbath, couldn't carry things on the Sabbath. So they wait till sundown when, according to Jewish chronology, the day is over, Sabbath is over, and they all come running to the healer. And now the passage in Matthew makes perfect sense. It's just a little comment. It's just a detail dropped in there by Matthew without an explanation. Look in a different gospel, we find the explanation. Mm, excellent. Amazing. Fascinating. So, and I can go on with more of these if you like, or we can stop Absolutely. And talk about something else. No, let's keep like. going. I'd like to. I'd like to really thoroughly cover this undesigned coincidences because it's just fascinating, and I know there are even better ones because I heard your lecture already. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm saving some of the best ones for last, and, and actually, I'm building up towards Easter. So, hang with me, and we'll get there. Well, I haven't heard any of these yet, Keith. So don't interrupt them again. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll stop. Go ahead and listen. Here's to another one from uh, Luke chapter nine, uh, verse thirty-six. The setting of this is the transfiguration, and so the disciples have gone up with Jesus into a mountain to pray, and suddenly they see him there with two other men whose raiment is shining, and then a cloud covers them, and there's a voice that comes out of the cloud, and and then the cloud passes, and there's nobody there but Jesus. Now, as you read in Luke 9.36, it says, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they, that is the disciples who were with him, kept silent and told no one in those days of anything of what they had seen. Why in the world, if you had seen your rabbi conferring with Moses and Elijah, and I heard the voice of God uh, authenticating his mission and his message, why on earth would you be silent and tell no one what you had seen? Does that make sense? I mean, I'm not an overly outgoing person, but I think I would be shouting this from the rooftop if I had witnessed this. They should have been trying to get on the 6 o'clock news with this. They'd be trying to be on with you guys. (laughs) There you go. I mean, get the word out all the way. But no, uh, there's an answer. There's there's an explanation for this in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 9. And I stress, this is something that is not plausibly a copying from Mark for a reason that I'm going to lay out here. Mark says, And as they were coming down the mountain, he, that is Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Uh So now we get it. They come down, and as they're coming down, Jesus says, Now guys, don't tell anybody about this until I rise from the dead. The disciples were somewhat dense, but they probably could have gotten the shut-up message out of that. (laughs) The curious thing is, Mark doesn't tell us whether they obeyed him. You might say, well, that's silly. They're his disciples. Of course they obeyed him. But if you go through the Gospels, there is no command given by Jesus that is more frequently violated than the command to tell no one. Constantly he's saying, I don't tell anybody about this, and then the person runs out and tells it, and Jesus has to leave the area because he's getting mobbed. So Luke tells us that they kept silence. He doesn't tell us why. Mark tells us that Jesus told them to keep silence. He doesn't tell us whether they did it. You put the two together, and it's a bit like stereoscopic vision. Suddenly the whole scene comes out in 3D, and you see exactly what happened. Wow, excellent. Um, let's, uh, that we, we've been playing around here with uh, Luke and Mark. Let's go to uh, a connection between John and Luke. As you said, these do go all directions. 
back to John chapter 6, that set up for the feeding of the 5,000. I love this because it's an event intimately connected with a miracle. In fact, the whole story makes no sense without the miracle. That's the whole point. And yet it's just replete with tiny details that bespeak authenticity. So here's one, John 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, if you're like me, raised in Christianity, going to Sunday school, you have flannel graph stories. I, I am told that they no longer do flannel graph, so I'm dating myself a little <laughs> bit here. But flannel graph stories of the feeding of the 5,000, and you just don't pay any attention to which disciple Jesus talks to. That's just part of the story, story part. It never occurred to me, until I began to study this argument, that there was an interesting point here. In all of the Gospels, after the calling of the disciples, Jesus addresses Philip only one other time. He is not a major player. When I uh, gave a talk on this down in New Orleans this past January, I asked the uh, listeners, so uh, we're going we're gonna to make up a, a story about Jesus. After all, we're told constantly that that's what the gospel authors did, so why shouldn't we be able to do it? Uh, so here's how we're going to do it. It's going to be a story. It's going to be a miracle. It's going to involve food and money. And Jesus is going to kick it off by speaking to one of his disciples. Which disciple? Now, these are educated people who've read their Bibles, and yet nobody picks Philip, right? They'll, they'll pick um, Peter, because Peter's very prominent. They'll pick Judas, because he's right. the one who held the purse. So if it's a matter of money, we might expect him to come into it. Or John. Yeah, but nobody, nobody thinks of Philip, because he's such a minor figure in the Gospel narratives. So here's the question. If, you, if this were a made-up story, why would anybody pick Philip? Well, you could say you just flip a coin, right? It's got to be a 12-sided coin, so we have to get out one of those 12-sided <laughs> dice that we used to play games with and roll that. Oh, gee whiz, Philip. Okay, Philip, that was the one. But there's a better explanation. For one thing, though, you can't find the explanation by looking around in John. If you look at John 144, it says that Philip was from Bethsaida. If you look in John chapter 12, there's a bit where some people come and speak to Philip because they're Greeks and they want to talk to Jesus so that they kind of have to get through the disciples before they can talk to him. None of that helps us here. But that little detail in John 144, now Philip was from Bethsaida, turns out to be very important because when you look at the parallels set up in Luke chapter 9, Luke writes, and he, that is Jesus, took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And suddenly the whole thing becomes clear. Why does he ask Philip? It's because this is where Philip is from. Philip, you're from around here. Where do you think we would get enough food to feed these people? Oh my gosh, yeah, that's a perfect connection. Exactly. Suddenly it makes sense. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. He okay? knows where all the uh, Wawas are. Yeah. <laughs> John does not mention Bethsaida anywhere as the setting for the miracle. Luke does not mention Philip anywhere in the narrative of the, of the whole story. You have to put the two of them together. Do you see the indirectness of that connection? How implausible it would be to say, well, uh, one of them just copied from the other one. Well, no. You could say Luke filled out something in Matthew when it came to the prophesy who struck you one. But as they become less direct, more incidental, the undesignedness is obvious and the independence of the narratives is obvious. Now, when you have independent narratives and they dovetail, you need to explain that. Nobody reads uh, A Tale of Two Cities in order to figure out what's going on in Moby Dick, right? They're independent stories. They don't have any grounding, either of them, in actual facts. And so we don't look at one of them to explain the other one. But with real history, the pieces sometimes, when we're 
fortunate we can find the pieces that fit together like this and give us the explanation. When we do, we have excellent reason for trusting the history. They get little details right that they couldn't even have known we would be asking about. So this is like if you read something in Josephus that you don't really understand, but yet you find in Tacitus, he ex gives another detail, now you understand Josephus better. That's right. And we do find this. Sometimes we're not fortunate enough to find the explanations. Sometimes we just don't have the connecting pieces of information. But when we do find the connecting pieces of information, it's one of the best kinds of historical evidence that we can ask for. You know, there's... A lot of uh, hue and a cry in the Internet infidels community about how much or how little non-Christian testimony to the primary facts of Christianity we have. Uh, and you point out Tacitus, Annals 1544, or a passage in Josephus, and then they all scream that the Josephus passage isn't authentic, that they're quite on the opposite side of the best modern scholarship of that, but let that go. This test, this test of incidental connections, is actually a harder test to pass. Let me give you an example, uh, two examples, of why it's hard to pass. First, uh, there are cases of secular documents, non-Christian documents, where the connections just fall apart. Uh, let's, let's take, for example, uh, the Gnostic Gospels of the second century. So the Gospels, so-called, of Thomas and of Philip. Uh, these works are completely decontextualized. They purport to give us the words of Jesus, but they contain no details of setting, no incidental references to persons or events. Uh, they there's no way that you can even start to find undesigned coincidences in them because there's no setting. These little details that we've been picking on, it was the Sabbath, they were in uh, Bethsaida, it was near the time of the Passover, all those little chronological and geographical details are gone in the Gnostic Gospels. So they give you no handles, no place to try to get a grip on them and tell whether they're authentic records. That's one of the clues that they've been written by somebody who was well aware he couldn't fill it in. Because they mm. were writing two centuries later and didn't have all those incidental details. later, and, and really the whole point was to convey esoteric wisdom, not to give us an authentic record of what someone real had really said and done in real places with real people. Hmm. This is the same kind of thing that you find in the Quran when you see uh, Muhammad telling a Bible story that he obviously heard in his travels um, as a merchant. He hears a Bible story such as Joseph in Egypt, and he tells the story, and then when he mentions the brothers, he can't remember any of the brothers' names. So in the Quran, none of the brothers have any names. They're just his brothers. Uh, the topic of names is actually a really interesting one. There is a recent work by Richard Balcom, a historian and New Testament scholar in England, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And one of the things that Balcom notes, and I think it's, it's a fascinating detail and just a, a little extra confirmation of authenticity, is that the names that we find in the New Testament we can independently show were in very good accord with the frequency with which Jews named their children these names in Palestine. So the wow. common Jewish name, male name, in Palestine in the first century was Simon. 
And behold, we've got several Simons in the New Testament. We've got Simon Peter. We've got Simon the Zealot or the Canaanite. We've got Simon the Tanner in the book of Acts. So several of them come up, and every time they come up, you have some extra little indication of which Simon it was. The second most common name was some variant on Joshua or Jesus. And again, you've got the the, uh, the frequency in the New Testament of characters, distinct characters, named Jesus, and there's more than one. Check it out. Um, but if you'd move just down south to Alexandria, there's a, a huge Jewish community there. Guess what the number one Jewish boy's name in the first century in Alexandria is? Mm, I know. Sabbateus. Mm. So if the New Testament had been faked up in Alexandria, I think we might have seen a character or two named Sabbateus. Ah, very but we don't. good. I love that. You see the point? And there's there's a lot more where that came from. It's not what I would call one of the primary evidences, but it's a lovely, indirect confirmation. Yeah, and Balcom, it just has that ring of truth. That's right. It's the ring of truth. Balcom has a very nice discussion of this and various other details. That's not the only thing with the names. The, the women's names also are in good accordance with the frequency tables. And so he does some statistical analysis on this. Very, very interesting. Wow. And by the way, the Gnostic Gospels fall flat on this, even though they borrow some of their names from our canonical Gospels. Ah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. So, just an interesting bit. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And with us is Dr. Tim McGrew, professor of philosophy from Western Michigan University, and we're talking about the Gospels, are they reliable, and undesigned coincidences, how they show that the Gospels were written early by eyewitnesses. So let's, do you have more? I'd I love do. to hear some more. Actually, let's let's move directly to some things that deal with the resurrection and or Easter. I was just going to ask about that. Yeah, let's let's do that. This one, and this one's one that is actually in the literature, but before I ran across it, I had been describing this mode of reasoning to my wife, and she came to me and she said, I think I found another one. And sure enough, she did. It turns out somebody else had found it uh, also, but I'm going to give her credit for this one. And that illustrates a beautiful thing about this line of argument. If you're arguing about things that require a vast acquaintance with the non-Christian history, then in order to be fully confident of that, somebody has to go and study up the history. If you're making an argument that depends on some subtleties of the Greek language, you got to learn Greek. But these evidences of undesigned coincidences are portable. You can carry them in your Bible, the one you take to church. I hope we still take Bibles to church. Yes? Good. <laughs> uh, you, you can just carry it in your own hand, and you can walk out with it. And so you don't need to become a great scholar to have some reason. There are other reasons for which you do have to be a scholar, and I'm all in favor of those. That's great. But these evidences are level to the abilities of just about anybody who can read. And I love that fact. So here's the one that my wife found. Um, in John chapter 21, we have a scene of Jesus with his disciples after his resurrection. So the whole setting requires, presupposes, that the resurrection has taken place. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than these other disciples? That's a pretty harsh-sounding thing to say. Why would Jesus be picking, as it were, on Peter and saying, do you love me more than these love me? What's the, I mean, it, wouldn't it be enough for Peter to say, well, Lord, I, I hope I don't love you any less, and let it go? So why is Jesus picking on him? If you read through John, you will not find the answer 
But if you go back to the Synoptic Gospels, for example, Matthew 26, verse 33, you see the scene in the upper room just before they go out to Gethsemane and then Jesus is nabbed. So this is right at the end of their contact. Peter boasts, he says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Oh, Uh. Peter's been bragging that he's the one who will always remain faithful. And then, of course, as we all know, Peter miserably failed to come through on that promise. So what happens? After the resurrection, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And notice Peter never says, yes, I love you more than these. He's beyond boasting now. He's been humble. All he says is, Lord, you know that I love you. Mm, terrific. So I think that's mm. a beautiful one. Yeah. Uh, one more, because I know you're a little low on time. You don't want to use too much. But uh, Luke 23, 1 through 4, this is the scene where the Jews, having decided to condemn Jesus, which, of course, was something they were looking for an excuse to do anyway, drag him before Pilate. So Luke 23, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Well, that was a lie. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Hmm, that's a more serious charge. Now watch what happens next. Here's the entire narrative as it stands in Luke. And Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now, do the instant replay on this. The crowd says he makes himself to be a king. This is a serious charge. Only Caesar has the right to appoint someone as a king. Pilate says, so are you a king? Jesus says, you said it yourself. And Pilate says, great, you're innocent. Something doesn't make sense here. But if you read the narrative of the same scene in John chapter 18, you get more details. And it turns out that everything Luke has said is accurate, but it's not the whole story. And it's the missing information that fills it in for us. So pick it up in John 18. If anybody's uh, looking at this, you can get start around verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Uh, it says, what accusation did you bring against him? They say, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. So Pilate says, well, okay, take him yourselves and have him judged by your own law. And they respond, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So Pilate takes him into his headquarters, calls Jesus and says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And now we get more detail. Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate gets a little testy. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And now Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. We get the whole what is truth thing. And after that, Pilate goes back outside to the Jews and says, I find no guilt in him. Well, of course not. He's just said, it's not that kind of a kingdom. It's no threat to Caesar. It's not the kind of kingdom that Caesar alone has arrogated to himself the right to build up. So now we can understand why Pilate was willing to acquit him. Whereas from Luke's narrative, we can't figure that out. The two sources are truthful, but you need the details supplied by John to figure out what's going on in Luke. And this one is a twofer. This one goes both directions. Because as you read through that narrative in John, John never reports the charge against Jesus that he made himself to be a king. And yet the very first question Pilate asks him is, are you the king of the Jews? Which is a question that comes completely out of left field if all you have in front of you is John's gospel. 
So John supplies a detail that makes sense of Luke's narrative, explains to us why Pilate acts as he does. But Luke supplies a detail that makes sense of John's narrative, explaining why Pilate asks the question that he does. It's perfectly obvious that neither of these narratives can be copied from the other. That's the ring of truth. Hmm. Wow, that's a great one. I love that one. Yeah. yeah it's one of my favorites. That's great. Now, how do people get more? What's... Well, it sounds like there are many more of these. There are. There's a wonderful book by a 19th century scholar named John James Blunt, B-L-U-N-T, just like it sounds. Blunt wrote a book called Undesigned Coincidences, and you can find it on the Internet. And in that book, he starts with the Old Testament, because it, this is not just a Gospels phenomenon or a New Testament phenomenon. This, this crisscrosses the Old Testament. We have them among the Gospels. We have them between Acts and Paul's epistles. So you want the book Undesigned Coincidences by John James Blunt. And he is the one who did the most to pursue this line of argument, popularize it. Uh, his book went through numerous editions. I've got it up through the 10th edition, I think. And I think it went through even more. So that would be one thing to look for, Undesigned Coincidences by John James Blunt. There's another work by uh, the celebrated British apologist William Paley called the Horae Paulinae. That's H-O-R-A-E-P-A-U-L-I-N-A-E. It means the times of Paul. And Paley makes the connections between Paul's letters in the New Testament and the detailed account of Paul's travels and preaching in the book of Acts. That's a wonderful book as well, and I would recommend it just very, very highly. Um, there's another little book, and you can find uh, the Horae Paulinae and this next book I'm about to mention on our website at historicalapologetics.org. This is a little but growing library. We've got uh, thousands of works of historical apologetics we want to put up, but we've only put up a few dozen so far. We're working on more. We're, we're doing the coding so that you can read them all on site. I but, just looked uh, at that website this afternoon, and it looks like it's it's already a very interesting site. We've, we've got some good stuff up there, but we're hoping to expand it. But the little book that you will find there that I have found very useful just for giving to people is called The Four Gospels from a Lawyer's Standpoint. It's written by Edmund Bennett, B-E-N-N-E-T-T, who was a lawyer in the very late 19th century, and he reviewed the works of Blunt and some others and subjected this the Gospels to the kind of analysis that a lawyer would use in assessing testimony, and then wrote this little book, very readable. If you skip the introduction, it's 58 pages. You could read it aloud to yourself in an afternoon. And it's just chock full of this kind of thing. Um, and this book is still in print? Oh, no. This book has been out of print for a long time. Oh, okay. Uh, we may change that, though. <laughs> We're looking into the possibility of republishing some of these uh, wonderful old books. They're out of copyright. You can get them free on the Internet. But some people just like to have them in their hands. Right. So I could warmly recommend that as well. If you want to look around, again, the web address is historicalapologetics, all one word, run together, dot org. And you will okay. find uh, quite a bit of material. that It'll keep you busy if you're, if you're wanting to do some reading on the subject. I'm ready to go home and uh, look at it now. Excellent. <laughs> so the idea is that it's not just one or two of these undesigned coincidences that carries a whole lot of weight. Right. It's the fact that there's so many of them. That's right. You, you can imagine how two people making up stories or embellishing an original core with legendary materials might once or twice stumble into something like this by accident. Again, it, it wouldn't be the way to bet, but it wouldn't be too far out. But when you've got a whole bunch of them put together, we've gone through eight today, and there are many, many more that we haven't had time to discuss. And then you put that together with the 
other layers of argument when you put it together with the broad and consistent testimony regarding the authorship and date of the Gospels from the Apostolic Fathers in the first and second centuries, when you look at the accuracy of references to details of topography, local customs, coins, military command, the use of names characteristic of Palestine at that time, and also when you look at incidental points of contact with secular history, and then you add this in as well, the whole argument is, it's like an avalanche. Hmm. It's not just this snowflake or that snowflake. <laughs> the whole thing just comes down on top of you. It's a blizzard. Just, yeah, and uh, to, to quote your, uh, your bumper music, I can't get past the evidence. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's, we've got maybe about five minutes left, so maybe we can give the audience a teaser about some of these incidental allusions, these historical allusions that you mentioned, and we'd love to have you back on the show in the future to go in depth into some of these. Sure. Again, this is a cumulative argument, so what I'm going to give you is going to be precisely that, just a teaser not something that's going to give the full weight of the argument, but this is the sort of thing which, when multiplied over and over, is just wonderful evidence. There's a, a verse in Matthew chapter 2, and as you probably know, the first two chapters of Matthew have been a favorite target of higher critics who have said, oh, the other Gospels don't mention the flight into Egypt, it must be unhistorical. Well, let's see. What we're going to do is extend the method of undesigned coincidences now to, between one text in Scripture and one outside, all right? So Matthew 2.22 says, Joseph is on his way up north from Egypt, having heard that Herod the Great is dead. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So this verse explains why Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus go into Galilee northward instead of back to Judea. Here's the puzzle. Herod the Great had a couple of sons. Archelaus was the oldest of them. And it was quite typical for a client king of the Romans to have his sons pro forma installed in his position. Since Archelaus was the oldest son, it was a reasonable bet that he would take the main seat of authority in Judea, even if, the, as was in fact the case, the kingdom was split and his younger brother Antipas got Galilee. So as soon as Joseph heard down there in Egypt that Herod the Great was dead, he could have made a pretty good guess that Archelaus would be reigning. So why does the fact that Archelaus is reigning suddenly spook him? Why does this make him run away? It looks like there's just a disconnect in the story. But if you go over and read Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, in his Antiquities, Book 17, you discover that there's more to the backstory about Archelaus. One of the first things Archelaus did upon taking his father's position in Judea was to put down a Jewish rebellion in a particularly bloody way. Literally, weeks after he took the throne, there was a Passover. So hundreds of thousands of Jews are flooding into Jerusalem. Some Jews get into a fight with some Roman soldiers. They stone the soldiers and kill some of them. Archelaus feels his grip on power beginning to weaken, and so he sends out a troop of horsemen. They surround the temple in Jerusalem. They have orders. Do not let anyone inside get out. Do not let anyone outside come in. Then he sends troops directly into the temple and kills 3,000 Jews in the temple. Passover was canceled. Hmm. He told the Jews, go home. Now, Joseph is on his way up from Alexandria in Egypt, where there's a very large Jewish population. Who does he meet on the road? Jews fleeing from Judea, heading back down to their home in Alexandria. Do you think they might have carried the news of what Archelaus had just done? Do you think they would be talking about anything else? Hmm. Right. And right. suddenly, we can see why news about Archelaus, which Matthew doesn't fill us in on, would have been exactly the thing to make Joseph sit and think, hmm, fled Judea to avoid a 
homicidal maniac and headed back up to Judea, which now has a homicidal maniac in charge who's killing Jews. I think I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> Do you see how that works? Yeah. And there Wonderful. are many, many more such interconnections between our scriptures and secular history. I just learned about one the other day, and I want to see if, if you know about this. Do you know that in Acts 18, Paul is taken before a tribunal of Gallio, mm -hmm. a Roman governor? Yeah. Guess who Gallio's famous brother is? I'm going to have to say Seneca. You're right. <laughs> exactly right. And it's not mentioned, but it's just really a interesting trivia. There is actually another coincidence there, but you're out of time. Maybe if we can get on... Uh, again, we can go into that in more detail because there's another detail about that very passage, which I'll just tease your audience with. Wonderful. We'll do that. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks. And I'm and Kirk, Kirk Hastings. Hastings. Join us again for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.